Well, oh, that was the foxhole uh, one. That was the foxhole yeah. one. <laughs> Welcome to the Amateur Radio Roundtable. I'm Katie, WY7YL, here with my cadre of co-hosts. If you're listening on the world-famous WBCQ shortwave station on um, 7490, please do drop us an email and let us know that you're listening. You can send that to tom at w5kub.com. Well, we here at the Amateur Radio Roundtable... Meet every Tuesday to talk all about ham radio and all of the different aspects and fun things that we enjoy. We talk tech things, we talk operating things, we have special guest speakers and more. So we're really pleased to have you join us tonight. And of course, because we're on YouTube, we appreciate your support. If you haven't already subscribed to the channel, please do hit that subscribe button down below and give us a thumbs up. Let us know you're liking the show, and it helps us to get the word out to your fellow amateur radio operators. We have an awesome show lined up for you tonight. Very excited for our special guests, and I thought we'd, let's just dive right in. We've got a lot to talk about tonight, so let's first check in with all of our co-hosts. Let me start with my friend Alan, W2AEW. Hi, Alan. Hello, Katie. Hello, everybody. Really good to see everybody here. Always exciting to hear Bob talk. I've heard some really great stories, so hopefully I'll hear some new ones tonight. So uh, sitting back, staying cool here in the air conditioning, and uh, looking forward to tonight's show. Sounds good. Thanks, Alan. Let's move on down south to where it's nice and cool to Glenn, KW5GP. <laughs> hey, Katie. No, it is not nice and cool. It's like 93 degrees in the shade down here. Thanks. <laughs> uh, I just want to let you know, y'all got your Amazon packages out last week. Um uh, I had to go in at two o'clock this morning, so we'll see how long I last tonight. But right, uh, well, we know how to poke you to wake you up. Yeah. You know? then, then we did field day, you know, and uh, right. so yeah, that's been fun. So back awesome. To well, good. We'll have some fun tonight, and of course, let's take it over. Take it over to the man in charge, our host and the man with the most, Mr. Tom Medlin, W5KUB. Hey! Wow. Okay. Let's see. There's Bill joining us late. Let me add Bill in here. Okay. Well, hey, guys. Uh, hey, thanks for everybody for joining us. Great show, like Katie said. We're going to have a great show tonight. And uh, uh, it's a 40-meter net tonight. Wasn't too good. I didn't hear but about three signals on the entire band, so I don't know what's going on. Hey, let me make just a couple quick announcements, and I'm going to turn it back to Katie. Um, this Thursday night, we're having a Zoom planning meeting uh, about our high-altitude near-space launch that's coming up here Saturday morning. So uh, if you've been uh, following us, uh, you know, we're, gonna, we're attempting to hit over 100,000 feet. we got a payload. We have three cameras, multiple GPS tracking. 
We've got an airplane that's going to be circling the, uh, the landing area. Uh, we've got uh, remote people to go out there and hunt this thing down. Uh, we're going to plan all this Thursday night on Zoom. So send me an email to tom at w5kub.com. If you're in the area, this, this balloon is going to come down somewhere within 50 miles of Memphis. So if you're in the area and you want to uh, be an uh, advanced uh, recovery team, let me know. You can join our meeting uh, Thursday. Uh, so uh, also, if you if you're, uh, just want to watch, I'm going to try to stream it live. So uh, we will try to stream the filling of the balloon and the launch of the balloon, and then we will stream live our, uh, our recovery vehicle as we drive uh, 50 miles to try to catch this thing. Uh, there will be others in the area that are after it, too. We don't know who's going to get there. There is a $50 reward for the first person that gets to it so that's going to be interesting so that's about all i have we'll talk more about it later maybe toward the end of the show back to you katie okay and here's and we got now that the 50 dollars in on it right we got bill here joining us a little bit late so welcome in bill how's everything down here neck of the woods oh we got a lot looking forward to tom's balloon launch coming up all right. Well, let me Excellent. just say, let me just say, Bill, Bill, uh, this launch actually is getting much more expensive than the Pico balloons we do. But Bill, uh, Bill has uh, provided a APRS tracker uh, and a parachute. I was not happy with the parachute we had. So thanks, Bill, uh, for being a part of this. And of course, he is our resident expert on our balloon launches. He's done, what, 900 balloon launches like this. And I think he was one of the first to ever do them. So thank you, Bill. And uh, Bill, we're going to jump right into the show. Back to you, Katie. Okay, Tom. Thanks so much. All right. Well, it is the final Tuesday of the month. And of course, that always means that our friend Rich W2BU from CQ Magazine is joining us to give us an update on the upcoming issue of the magazine. And welcome back, Rich. Nice to see you. Good to see you. And hello, everybody. And uh, Glenn, you only had 93 degrees there today? It was 96 here in New Jersey, and it's supposed to be 99 here tomorrow with a heat index of oh, 110 or something like that. I thought we'd let you have it now since you had such a bad winter. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's that's uh, uh Anyway, so let's talk about what's going on with CQ Magazine. It is right. already, we're talking about the July issue. July I can't issue. believe Yep, it's already going to be July. Uh, first of all, we have our Summer Madness subscription special going on, so check out our website for the great deals. And uh, the July issue is a really a fun one. We put together a mini special on what we're calling New Life for Old Heath Kits. A uh, bunch of articles on reconditioning or converting old Heath Kits to do various different things. And in fact, we had so many great articles, we couldn't fit them all in the July issue, so we're going to continue it in August. Um, the issue starts out with a, a news bite story about our own DX editor, Bob Shank, W2N2OO, who uh, was involved in basically the, the middle of a story on uh, Novo and PV, PBS about uh, a new film about the crash of the Hindenburg that has been in his family ever since that happened. His uncle shot the film, and apparently the investigators at the time weren't interested in it, but uh, there's new interest 
and it's showing new angles. So it's really, really cool story. Um, we have, of course, the results of the CQ Worldwide WPX 3D contest in uh, the July issue. And uh, it was the, another pandemic contest, so it had a tremendous amount of, of activity. And uh, then we get into our Heathkit mini special. We start out with the canine ARZ's article called Three Gifts from Heathkit. Um, no, he actually did buy the radios, but uh, how he writes about how they gave him various gifts of, of operating and experience and things like that. Very great article. Then N8RG has an article on restoring the original Heathkit. I wonder how many of you know what that is. The K1 AM all-wave receiver was the first electronic kit put out by Heathkit. And he picked one up um, somewhere or other that uh, was in, in horrible shape. And one of the really cool things about this article is applying 21st century technology to restoring it and uh, basically rebuilt the front panel um, with high-definition photography and a uh, company that etches uh, the, the prints photos on aluminum. Very, very fascinating story. Uh, John Thompson, K3MD, writes about restoring a Heathkit DX60 transmitter, one of the classic Heathkits. And uh, then we move off of Heathkits to a story by KB0VKS called A Dummy Load for Power Supplies. We all have dummy loads for our antennas. And this is a dummy load for power supplies. You pick up a power supply at a flea market or online, and how do you know that it's operating correctly and doing what it's supposed to do? Well, announced uh, late May, uh, what would have been Dayton time. And uh, in our columns, WA2NDM and Mass Notes continues his theories on working with supercapacitors, power supplies. Jerry Dexter, our listening post columnist for all of our shortwave listening friends out there, um, has an interesting piece on mysterious South American stations that no one has, uh, as of this point, been able to identify yet. So read up on that and maybe you can help solve the mystery. Joe Eisenberg, K0NEB, writes about finding hidden treasure in his kit building column this month. And in Learning Curve, we review Ward Silver's fourth edition of Ham Radio for Dummies. Uh, the first three have been fantastic, and so is the fourth. Um, in Ham Notebook, Wayne Yoshida, KH6WZ, writes about gonculators. You Say that three times fast. That's right. <laughs> So, if you want to know what a gonculator is, you got to get a copy of the July issue of CQ. <laughs> Talk about a teaser. <laughs> that was in the Hogan's Heroes episode, actually. Was it? Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he does explain it. So, um, in our uh, low, low, low bands column, MFLF operating, uh, KB5NJD reports on a couple of uh, low band D expeditions to Hawaii, Arkansas, and Louisiana on 630 meters. Gordo writes about tracking and treating local noise sources, very important bits of information to have on tracking down noise and getting rid of it. 
Um, then we get into a couple of different types of propagation. In VHF Plus, uh, N4DTF writes about tropospheric ducting, which of course is a big summertime phenomenon, especially if you live along a coast. And uh, in our propagation column, we are burning up the clouds with NVIS, near vertical incidence skywave. And that's a brief look. There's a lot more. I just pulled out the highlights. And uh, it'll be coming your way online uh, in a couple of days and uh, in the mail a bit after that. So wow. that's the highlights of our CQ for the month. And remember our Summer Madness subscription special on our website. And of course, where what is the best website for people to visit to get their subscription? www.cq-amateur-radio.com. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <Ta -da! laughs> That's great. Thanks, Rich. We always appreciate the update and we appreciate CQ's magazine support of the show and our partnership is always enjoyable to have you visit with us as always. And um, I'm going to go ahead and pass it back to Tom and let him manage the rest of the show. So back to you, Tom. All right. Thank you so much. Hey, Rich. Thanks, man. Uh, I, I, I didn't know what that was that you're talking about. I do have a kryptonite paraphase thunderbolt greaser slapper here. I don't know if you've if seen one of those or not. <laughs> I, I haven't seen one recently, but uh, yeah, the, the gonculator, let's see. Am I allowed to say what it is? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, you're going to have to read it. Cause All I, right, we'll uh, read it. We'll try to figure but, it out. You are, but uh, Bill, Bill wins the prize, though, because it does come from Hogan's Hero. All right. Uh, well, great. Yeah. Hey, thanks again, man. We'll see you uh, here. Uh, stick around with us all, all, all night if you want to and jump in when you want to, okay? I'll do my best to hang around. All right. Me. Hey, we're, we're doing really good on timing. We're going to do this every week. Uh, I don't know what the difference is tonight. I guess we just got kind of a little more structure tonight. I'm in charge. That's You're in charge. That's, that's exactly what <laughs> happened here. We, we can kind of chit-chat back and forth and kill an extra minute here. We're so far ahead of schedule right now. We it got, just gives us more time to listen to Bob. We got such a great guest tonight, I tell you. And that's why I wanted to, us yeah. to have a lot of free time here tonight <laughs> to talk to our next guest. Um. You know, and everybody uh, on here calls me an old guy, you know, 58 years as a ham radio. But I'm a baby when it's compared to Bob. Bob has done everything. Bob got his license in 1956, man. And uh, I wasn't even thinking about ham radio in 1956. I think I was probably eight years old, you know. I wasn't even here yet. Yeah, well, hey, that's your fault. Well, maybe it's not your fault. I don't know. Anyway, okay, back to the, back to it here. Look, hey. One of the things about one of the things about our guest here, uh, you know, he was focused in on the sound reinforcement industry, and I don't know how he did it, but he developed this special uh, ear for high quality audio, and it may have had something to do with him playing the uh, the uh, Wurlitzer organ, and he can he can tell us a little uh, in a few minutes on how he uh, how he did that. But, you know, he, uh, he's a builder, a designer, an engineer, and he's a friend to all of us. Uh, really, he's a trailblazer when it comes to uh, ham radio and, and the audio systems. Um, and I don't know how he got away with some of the stuff we're going to talk about. Uh, his mom and dad probably went on vacation one week and left him at home. <laughs> 
and uh, he put up a 128 element two meter Yagi array. Now I don't know how you can get away with that, but he did that. Um, that that's an accomplishment right there. Uh, he was one of the first people, I think, to operate a kilowatt on VHF, on sideband. Um, he's got a lot of gear. We'll probably talk about some of the old gear and how it's uh, been all refurbished and still working today. Uh, the company, his company is Ohio Sound. Um, I'm glad you changed the name to Ohio Sound, Bob. Uh, and you can tell us uh, who helped you change that name or suggested that. Later, but uh, Bob has traveled with major rock and roll bands and uh, the James Gang, uh, Grateful Dead, uh, The Who, ZZ Top, Peter Frampton, just to name a few. I don't know how he did it, and it's still still around, man. So I tell you what, Heil Sound uh, is the only manufacturer that's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I want to go ahead and introduce and bring in our friend. Who has supported this? Let me say one thing before I bring Bob in. We started webcasting about 20 years ago, and uh, <clears throat> we would go over and talk with Bob and interview Bob, and we would use a cheap $2 computer microphone, and Bob Bob gave us a Heil PR35 microphone, and that kind of kicked off the quality uh, on our show and we've done a lot more for quality since then but uh, one of the things Bob one of the things I, I, I'm a little unhappy with Bob you know when I ask you who uses this microphone I think you always say Charlie Daniels and Carrie Underwood but I, I wish when you would tell that story you'd also put Tom Medlin on the end of that Charlie Daniels <laughs> Carrie Underwood Tom Medlin so hey Bob Dr. Bob uh, Heil everybody how, how you doing Bob <laughs> oh, I'm doing great. It's really great to be here. We're uh, we're covered up these days, but I thought, you know what? I need to get back in the trenches here because since actually February of 2020, when the pandemic started, I did a couple of club meetings via Zoom, and they were very successful. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of guys came to me and come to our club. Well. I did one uh, just a couple of days ago, and it was number 219 mm. since February of 2020. <clears throat> Most of them last at least an hour and a half. Uh, we've had some last up to two and a half hours because the question and answer period gets really good. But I, uh, I'm just fascinated by ham radio, and I always think we need more information passed and some of it's not happening so maybe that'd be something we should do and that's why we started ham nation some years back when leo laporte asked me if i could do a show and i didn't know my first guess i figured what well, was gonna last what two of them so i uh, called on my good friend joe and walsh and i did the first one and it was pretty <laughs> it was pretty <laughs> pretty novice let me tell you but uh, the second one i pulled in the most no notable ham on the and this and the whole country and that's gordon west and went we went crazy from there but uh after all those years we they changed platform and i thought you know i better keep up doing what i was doing because i was doing these uh club meetings which i still do and i just signed one up here about an hour before the show some guy from long beach uh, called me so anyway it's been a wonderful ride and it's nowhere close to ending for me uh, i turned 80 last october 
and uh, I feel like I'm, I really mean this, I feel like I'm 20 or 30, I, I don't have any problems, I'm very blessed about health and all that, well, still building, good. still climbing, still doing it, and the main thing is that it's all about ham radio, because my career, uh, there, were, there are two factors of my careers, one of them is ham radio, being able to build and make things happen. But the other one, my other career was very interesting. My other career was this guy. At the age of 15, I became the organist at the Fox Theater in St. Louis. And I had a year before that, I had played in a little restaurant in Freeburg, Illinois. These are all about 40 miles southeast of St. Louis. And uh, at 14, I was making some pretty pretty good money. And uh, I thought, oh boy, this is going to be my career. But right in the middle of all that came Ham Radio. One of my high school chums uh, came to me and said, hey. So we went over to Walter Ash and uh, bought a Harvey Wells and Everything took off from there. Mm, mm. But one of the things that I'm always proud to talk about is that. You're saying, what has that got to do with ham radio? Well, for me, it has everything to do. Stan Can was the organist there, and he summoned me to help him. That organ hadn't been played in 20 years. Other than just substituting, we had to voice and tune about 3,500 pipes from one inch to 32 foot. <laughs> and that is what taught Bob Heil how to listen. Listening, it's a mental process. Everybody hears, it's a physio idea. But a lot of people don't really get in and listen. And that's what I learned here. We had to voice and tune these pipes so that uh, they were all the same, like that rank of trumpets. You see, there were about 80 trumpets in a rank. There were 80 clarinets and so on and so forth. But if you picked it out, you you were the voicer. So you had to, are they going to be a little muffled? And they all had to be muffled. Are they going to be bright? That's where I learned to listen. And uh, that carried on through my entire life still today. Learning to listen, I, I have to tell you. There's so much to that, and yet there's not a whole lot of people that realize how much there is in listening. But I'm very, very blessed that I was summoned by Stan Can to help him, and it went crazy from there. Uh, I built several pipe organs, one in a restaurant and all that. But it was all because of ham radio also. You just don't build things unless you know what to do with a soldering iron. <laughs> but ham radio is the focus of it. And uh, like you said, Tom, the... It was an interesting thing about, I had met up with a guy on uh, six meters. I was a technician for 17 years. I didn't need to go down to 20 or 75. Why? Because the band was open 24-7. When yeah, I talk yeah. about that, people go, yeah, no, you lie. No, that was the largest sunspot cycle in the history and it was just incredible. And um, I was stupid. I, I didn't know this only lasted for 11 or 12 years. <laughs> but anyway, I, uh, I heard this guy one night on the air. I'd only been on about two weeks. It was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard. The distortion was awful. And, um, uh, well, I'll give him a call. And I did. And he came back. 
and it was K0DGE. And he was on single sideband, one of the very first few on sideband on six meters. And there's a 1956 now. <laughs> I called him and he came back. Uh, the only reason I could hear him, by the way, is I had this brand new, I'd only been with it for about two, three weeks, SX99, and I hit the BFO button and I just happened to be on the right frequency, and here comes this voice. Hmm. And I'm going, hmm. that's that single sideband stuff I've been reading about. And so I got up nerve and called him, and he came back. He said, I'm so happy because nobody wants to talk to me. They, don't, they think I'm real distorted, and he really wasn't once you got the, the carrier put in at your receiver. Well, long story short, he was the head engineer at KMOX Radio, CBS in St. Louis, he took me under his wing, and I said, hey, would you build me one of those? No, I can't do that, but I'm going to teach you how, and he did. So within a month of being on the air, I'm out building like crazy. I had a laundry list, went over to Walter Ash in St. Louis, uh, and bought a central electronics uh, 10B, mm-hmm. plug-in coils, and he had me buy a mill and grid dip meter, which I still have and use, but we had to buy a chassis and a 6U8. We built a 36 megacycle oscillator. What's 36 and 14? Hello, 50 megacycles. So I, too, was on six meters sideband. And uh, I, I was just having so much fun. But uh, I had these loving parents. They weren't into ham radio much. And they uh, they were absolutely thrilled that I was doing things and I had people to help me. I had a Motorola dealer that lived about 10 miles south of me and had another guy about 8 miles north of me that was in the construction business. Both hams, K9SGD and K9EBA. And they put up a 110-foot roan for me. And I was, I think I was 17, wow. 18, something like that. But the antenna was very special. That's a Telerex spiral array. It's kind of hard to see if you have a small monitor. The elements are not all vertical and they're not all horizontal. It was their new spiral array. And it was really a thing that they were experimenting with in that when a signal leaves your antenna, you figure, oh, well, there it goes. Well, no. And when a signal fades, you figure, oh, boy, that, you know, you lost power or something. Uh-uh. Your signal is changing polarity constantly. Mm-hmm. If it gets enough to be up vertical, you're going to be down 10 or 15 dB. And so they brought out this spiral array, and it actually did help that. It didn't cure it, but boy, it sure did help. And so then I, <laughs> my loving parents on the other side of our big old Victorian home, I, I had the guys put up a 50-foot roan, and... We put up a pair of uh, 36-foot-long, 15-element, uh, two-meter arrays. But notice, one's vertical and one's horizontal. Mm-hmm. I had read in the magazines about how I could phase a pair of antennas. So I brought the leads down into the station. I used Times T-Line, still do it today. And I built phasing harnesses just playing around and I could do all kinds of patterns. I learned so much about phasing. I become a phasing nut. And now that, you know, I'm doing pretty good, but I need more power. 
So I went to Walter Ash and bought a six and two Thunderbolt kit, put it together. Larry Burroughs, KMOX, he, I'd take these things to him and he'd help me, always warning me, you be aware, kid, that 3,500 volts will kill you. And he said, so this isn't 12 volts you're playing with. And so he, he, learned, he taught me how to respect high voltage. But that gave me a kilowatt, almost a half, on six and two meter single sideband. And little did I know how much that was uh, <laughs> focusing through the, the country. I'd get a call from Bob Drake, W8CYE from the Drake Company. He said, you the guy that's got that kilowatt on single sideband VHF? I said, yes, sir. I would like for you to come and speak at one of our meetings. We hold an annual meeting, and it's a technical meeting. I want you to bring all pictures and diagrams and uh, do a presentation on how you did this. Well, I wanted Larry to go because, you know, it really wasn't me. I, I, it was him teaching me, but I went. And uh, where was this? Well, it happened to be the Biltmore Hotel in Dayton, Ohio. They had taken all the furniture out of one of the floors. And they had the Collins room, the Hallicrafter room. They had all of these wonderful things that these different people were, were talking about. You could walk in and talk to Carl Mosley. He was there. You could talk to Wes Shum, the guy that brought single sideband to ham radio. If you had a trivia contest, everybody would say, oh, that was Art Collins. Nope, he was six years late for the party. It was Wes Shum in 1948. And over the years, he became a very good friend of mine. And he was, I call him my cottage professor because I learned so much from building those uh, phasing rigs. Bill Halligan was there from the Hallicrafter people. But the J-Beam company was there from England. And they, I w went into one of their rooms and he said, hey, we would like to have you join us in an experiment. If we sent over one of our antennas, would you put it up? Yeah, why not? They sent over 128 element on two mm, meters. Mm. Again, K9 SGD and K9 EBA. We had a spare lot on the other side of our house. And we put up a 40-foot roan vertical and a 40-foot roan is the, uh, the beam. Had two prop pitch motors. So, so, Bob, let, let me ask you a question here. I mean, yeah. I, even my parents supported the hobby and whatever I wanted to do. But, man, I mean, this is taking it to extremes. Did they not, your parents not kind of wonder about all this uh, metal you're putting up in the air? No. Wow. No, because they they knew Joe Hall. He was, he was he and uh, yeah. Gus Medina, they were locals. They, they knew each other, and they, they had talked to him, and they knew that I was, just wasn't some rambunctious kid throwing up a bunch of junk. And uh, the, going to Dayton was another big deal. They, wow, you know, this, this, is, this is something real. Mm -hmm. And it didn't cost them a nickel because I was doing quite well from playing the organ uh, each mm -hmm. night. So that that was a big part of it also that I didn't have to lean on them for any financing. But that was my life, and it goes on from there. I, uh, I built a pipe organ in a restaurant and on and on. But, Rich, uh, you might remember this, maybe. In 1962, I got a job at CQ Magazine. Oh, I'm still playing the organ, all right. Each night. 
But I got a job in the 1962 CQ. I became the VHF single sideband editor. We had a column in there each month. You see, sideband was extremely rare, but it was the place where serious VHFers came. You didn't, you didn't go down and buy a 7300. You had nothing, nothing on six or two meter sideband. So you had to build it. And that's what we did in our monthly column had all kinds of diagrams and we shared our things and it was a place that we all learned it was wonderful and that that was another place that really it really led me to to understand more about electronics and cq magazine was at the helm of that part of it but i uh, i really enjoyed all that because i was sharing what i had learned with all of my ham radio friends and that that meant a lot to me but it was um, it was just something that that i loved to do i had all day at home i i would go in to play the, the theater or the restaurant i'd leave home about six o'clock get in my my car i had a couple of big all kinds of fun cars but they all had uh uh, uh, halo antennas on them <laughs> I was working single sideband mobile mm -hmm. I had taken an, a swan a, a, two, a 240 swan they had sent to, this to the magazine to review which they did but then I, I don't know the particulars of who it was but anyway whoever it was at CQ I asked him hey what do you do with that stuff when you finish well we either send it back or give it I, would you mind uh, giving it to me <laughs> <laughs> so they sent it to me and what did I do with it <laughs> it was a swan 240 brand new <laughs> well I converted it to six meter sideband <laughs> and uh, I was on the road for an hour a night going and an hour coming home so I was kind of the beacon around St. Louis uh, and with the band being open as much as it was we would work a lot of uh, a lot of of uh, dx and stuff with it so those were all this fun things that ham radio brought to me and i sh i share it with everyone because we we're a whole different breed ham radio operators we we learn to do things on our own but then we share it with people and that's really a big deal but there's so much and i don't you know so much to my story but that's the good part of it where ham radio was at the forefront of everything i do today i wouldn't i wouldn't dare have anything happening if it wasn't for that but then in 1966 i quit playing I'd been doing that for 12 years, six nights a week. And I opened a little music shop to sell Hammond organs. I I hardly knew. Now, I know people think I'm lying. They think I'm making this up. In 1966, I hardly knew who the Beatles were. And you're going to say, are you crazy? No. <laughs> Everything I listened to was Jesse Crawford, George Wright, Lynn Larson, all of these great theater organists. So I listened to, and I, uh, I, I'd listen to some music, but I didn't really pay attention. And I opened this little store in my hometown, and I started selling Hammond organs. 
I'd tear them apart and make all custom ones. And then the groups were starting to buy them from me, but they were heavy. Those darn things weigh 300 pounds. So I took some of them and cut them in half and took all the wood out and just had the metal case and they were 100 pounds less. Well, a few people found out that was the guy with his soldering iron in Marissa, Illinois and working with local bands. That's what started that part of my life, and we could be here for two years talking about that. But it, it, again, it was ham radio. I'll never forget. I'm dyed in a wool Hammond organ dealer. I didn't have any kind of guitars or anything. I didn't know about them. <laughs> this kid came in one day, and he had this box, and he said, you fix things here? And I said, yes, sir. Well, I got this amplifier. Okay, what is that? He says, it's a guitar amp. It's the first guitar amp I had ever seen. In 1966 now. <laughs> Turned it upside down. I figured he probably made it go to 12 and it only went to 10. <laughs> and he blew it up. Yeah. Turn it upside down. What did it have in it? A pair of 6L6s and a 5U4. Mm. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's the modulator and my beloved Harvey Wells. I knew the circuit well. So I didn't need a schematic. I didn't need anything. But, you know, hams, we don't throw anything away. Yeah. I had a junk box, and I had a pair of 6L6s. I had a 5U4. And, of course, you're going to need the screen resistors because if you wipe out those finals, this, the screen resistors are not going to be good. I had that back together in about 20, 30 minutes. He was amazed. He said, you didn't even have one of them schematic things. No, I didn't have one of those schematic things. Well, <laughs> it, uh, it all hit, hit, hit the pavement. People like, you know, these are young kids now. They were still in high school. Michael mm -hmm. McDonald, RAO Speedwagon, they weren't known by that. They were just guys in high school up around Champaign. But the word got out that there was this kid with a soldering iron and fixer stuff. And I very quickly learned who the Beatles were <laughs> and who everybody else was because it, it, it was very evident that they needed help. Because I started renting Hammond organs. To the uh, arenas and the uh, venues around St. Louis for just local bands, but the PA's were terrible. They were dated back to the twenties, to the thirties and forties. So they were just little columns. Well, I uh, was very uh, aggressive on that, and I started building some rather large things for them. JBL speakers had uh, fiberglass horns. You can't see some of that. That was a bad picture, but what did I know? The, the little did I know I was going to use it later on, the picture. Anyway, that started a big deal. But the only problem with it, uh, it had plenty of power. It was using Macintosh amps, which really excited a lot of people. I didn't know. I, hey, that was, that was a good amp, so why not? So we buy a bunch of Macintoshes. So it was a very clean, loud sound. But what do you do about a mixer? In 1966-67, that was it. I mean, this was the Rolls-Royce. And I mixed Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, all kinds of others in the 19,000-seat Keel Auditorium with that mixer and that PA you saw. Well, the Fox Theater called me and said, Hey, 
You need to come up here. We're taking our PA out. This was put in in 1930s, and we're putting in a new one, but they're big, big cabinets. You might want them. Well, yeah. <laughs> Hams don't throw anything away. Mm-hmm. Well, they were front-load Olsen bins, folded horns, all kinds of stuff. I'm going, yeah, we put JBL speakers in them. I had a new guy in town that had a fiberglass shop. We built fiberglass horns and Macintosh to drive it. Oh, buddy. And uh, I did Jimi Hendrix uh, on his second return, and Noel Redding used one of my 30-inch woofers. Uh, Electrovoice had a speaker, a hi-fi speaker, called the Partition, and the woofer in it was 30 inches. So I bought one of them, and I built a cabinet for it. And it was a great promo for my ye old music shop, let me tell you. And uh, Noel, uh, along with several others, he he rented it on tour. He I didn't go with him on that, but they took it. It thing went around the world for a while. But it was just so much fun because I got to work with the... Uh, People like Dolly Parton when she was 24 or so, little Jimmy Dickens and Buck Owens and all these kind of country guys and gals would come up and uh, do a show once a month in St. Louis and use my PA. But I knew I had to do something. I really did have to do something because that mixer was terrible. It never even had any EQ. It just had four or five channels. That's all you mixed. I got to tell you a funny story about that. When I did that, Jimi Hendrix show we mixed right up in front of the stage <clears throat> didn't have what we call snakes and multi cords and put the mixers in the back of the hall I was right there I could reach out that far and touch his shoes and everybody else <laughs> well I didn't know kind of what Jimmy did other than I knew he was really loud and I also learned he really could play the guitar big time but one of his deals, some of you might know this, what's coming. <laughs> Remember, I'm only about three feet from him. He laid that Stratocaster on the, on the floor of the stage. I could have touched it. Gets out a, a can of lighter fluid, Ronson lighter fluid, and he squirts it all over the strings, and then he took a match, and that, that that's part of his act. I was looking for the exit. I really did because I I hadn't heard about this. I mean, I wasn't <laughs> into what's going on here. <laughs> but those are some of the fun days. But I knew I had to do something different. I had to build a mixer, and I had to be able to put it in the back of the hall. And we were the first people to do that. First of all, I had heard that Langevin had just come up with a a mixer for studios. It was eight channels. And... Uh, I had a cabinet builder in Marissa. He built the cabinet for it. And I had a pair of these Langevins. That gave me 16 channels. I mean, people would come in when we'd bring this in, and it was like, what is this? Whoa. And it really launched tile sound because the word got out. But there was one other thing. You can't see it uh, too, too easily. Up there in the right, up at the top right corner of that, was the very first equalizer. Up until this day, we didn't have much about equalizers. And uh, they came out with the very first equalizer in 1968. That was a miracle. 
because now we could really do things. And with this new mixer, uh, we, were, we were going all over the place. But there's so much to talk about. And, you know, we can be here all night talking about the mini bands. I'm just going to spotlight this because there's one subject I really want to get into, and that's equalization because it touches on ham radio big time. We had been doing a lot of bands, uh, The Grateful Dead and Joan Baez and uh, Humble Pie, The Who, Slash in his early days, Pete Frampton, all, all these guys, and of course Joe. And um, I, uh, I knew that we had to do a little more with the uh, equalization thing, and I, I really got into that. One thing about all of these different groups we did a thing in 1970. This is a piece of rock history I'll let you in on. You can go check me out on it because I'll give you a place to look into Google. The Fox called me and said, hey, you still have those big speakers we gave you? I do. Well, um, we got a problem. What's the problem? Well, this band came in here this afternoon for a sound check for tonight. And their PA didn't make it. I, well, where is it? Well, it's in jail in California. Do wait a minute. What do you mean it's in jail? Well, here's the deal. This group had a sound man, a sound man that was one of the inventors of LSD. He was on probation. He should not have been out of the state of California. But they were going to sneak in this little tour. New Orleans, St. Louis, Ohio, and New Jersey. Because they were going to play for one of the Hells Angels funerals in New Jersey. Hells Angels <laughs> did their, their uh, security. They did the night in New Orleans. However, the DEA and the FBI heard about it. So they went to New Orleans and sat in the back row. And when it was over... The band came on to St. Louis. They didn't have cell phones. Uh, hey, we'll see you at the Fox at 3 o'clock tomorrow. Okay, we'll be there. And so, when Owsley padlocked the truck, had all the stuff in it, the DEA and the FBI padlocked him on the California they were. So, they get on the stage, and the stage manager said, you talk to this guy and tell him what you got. Well, this guy was Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead. And I told him I had Macintosh amps, Olsen bins. He was like, whoa. I didn't know. No one else had not done this at that level. And uh, we had a great, great night. There was a journalist there. You want to write this down. He wrote an article called The Night Rock and Roll Sound Was Born. Wow. And he put it into Billboard magazine the next week. You can go into Google and read it, but it was there. The whole world was calling Bob Heil. It's like, oh, what did I do now? I became a very, very good friend with Jerry. Uh, he would come to Marissa several times, not to play. He'd just come. he just like to sit down and talk to me because I was a guy that would listen to them. At that time in the history of, of music, 
the the music stores were band instrument stores. They really didn't like all the rockers. They didn't know much about them. They just know they were long hairs, and they didn't want they didn't want to deal with them. What they didn't know is they probably had more money in their front pocket they could buy their store. So why don't you pay attention to them? I didn't do it for that. I did it for the fun of it because they'd come to me with, "Hey, can we do this? Uh, I can build that." And that was how it all got going for me. Well, Jerry Garcia would come to Marissa, I think it was three, maybe four times. One of the times he wanted to learn to play steel guitar, and I just happened to know the steel guitar uh, teacher that taught a lot of this Nashville guys, and he was in St. Louis. So I put him in the car, and we go up to St. Louis, and he met Scotty DeWitt. And that's when Jerry Garcia learned to play the steel and we put together the band called New Writers of the Purple Sage. Well, we became really good friends. And in those first couple of shows that we were out with them, New Orleans and St. Louis and Ohio, uh, everything was all over my speakers and stuff. And it was, uh, it was billboarded, Ye Old Music Shop. And I didn't think anything. I'm, I'm an organ store. But we had to do something about it, I guess. But anyway, Jerry called me and he said, Hey, Heil, what's all of this ye old music stuff? And I said, Well, um, that's my music shop. He said, oh, Man, I'm sorry, but we can't pronounce all that ye old stuff. We're just going to call you Heil Sound. And when we write the checkout night and give it to you, Guy, we're going to call you Heil Sound. Is that okay? This is an absolute 105% true story jerry garcia named Heil sound wasn't me i was ye old music shop <laughs> after uh, jerry did i said okay well, i'll handle that but you go read it in the billboard billboard and you'll find out about it <laughs> and the last thing we'll get into here i was a straight man in a very crazy world even to this day, I have never tasted beer, never did any kind of drugs, never smoked anything. But that's okay. I respected them for whatever they wanted to do because they respected me for my soldering iron and my knowledge. So everybody was happy. But what I wasn't happy about in some of those very first tours we did, they would bring their gear in. They'd have a Volkswagen van, one guy, they'd put stuff in it guitar amps and guitar they'd have a pickup truck with the lighting trusses and they'd have another truck or van or whatever they never got there all together some didn't get there at all this show didn't happen i'm going we gotta stop this and so it was we were the first people to do anything about that i leased a 40-foot semi and a licensed driver I bought an old Greyhound bus, and I had a mechanic I knew mine that worked up at Scott, Scott Air Force Base, which is right down the road from us here. They redid the uh, diesel and all the drive frame. We built 11 beds in it so we could sleep some of the road crew. We were the first guys. When you talk about touring, that was it. When I did before... Uh, Carrie Underwood shut down. We did all her stuff for many, many years. The last show we did with them had, ready for this, 16 55-foot semis and nine Prevost buses. I was just a little bit more than 
I started with. But we got the the we got the baby rolling. That was for sure. And one of the last band I, I told you about the Who. That's another whole night story. Uh, we had to fly all the gear out to Boston, and we did that. Just crazy stuff. But a manager called me one day, uh, and he said, I got this group, and they're really loud. We're coming on tour, and we need your loud PA. You think you can do it? Eh, I think I can. We'd just done the Who, and it was pretty loud. Well, I did the Who, though, for six years. But <laughs> uh, This was their first job and the first tour. Who was it? Nobody ever guesses it. It's ZZ Top without beards. I told you they were young. And we're still with them, still doing their microphones, still having fun. But this was all just great stuff. And uh, Pete Townsend and I became really, really good friends. There's whole stories about that. But, you know, this goes on forever. And I, I yacked enough about all that. But one thing that we did do is uh, Pete wanted to do a quad mix for his quadrophenia, which wanted to know if I could build a PA that we could move Roger's voice around the hall, but we needed a, a, a quad mixer, not just two channels, but four. And then we had to have a PA. I mean, yeah, we can do that. And so we, uh, we got together with him. He was really up on all the synthesizers, way ahead of everybody. And um, one of our sister companies, IES in uh, England, and I, we, uh, his Bill Hoff was their engineer. We put together the first and only quad mixer, and uh, we were able to to really make that play. One of those is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and we're very honored by all of that because we're we're on a large company. But they said, "Yeah, but it's all of the things you do," and I never thought about it. We were the first people to build modular power amps, a 400-watt and a 200-watt, built hundreds and hundreds of them. But when you bought it, you got an anvil case with a spare module for the power amp and a spare module for the mixer. had a, a Phillips screwdriver, in case you spare fuses, and it had a quarter. Yeah, a quarter. Now you're going to say... What was that for? Well, uh, these guys running around the country sometimes, they, you know, if something broke down, they would put the bad module in there. It took them five minutes to change it. And then they would lock that up, go to a telephone, drop in the quarter, call me, and uh, put that on a Greyhound bus. That's what the quarter was for. You think I'm kidding you, but I mean, that was a big deal. Because when they're all shook up because everything blew up, anybody got caught, anybody got a court. No, here we go. <laughs> but oh, we, we went crazy. My brother, <clears throat> brother in law, ran the wood shop. We were building a lot of cabinets, of course, hundreds and hundreds of them every month. He built the uh, 5,000 square foot building beside our 7,000 square. Uh, we were at our own fiberglass shop and a lot of people building things and doing stuff. And it was uh, it was wonderful. I was really, really happy with it all turned out. We had 35 people building all these many things. And we really were the Rock and roll capital of the country, Marissa, Illinois, 2,000 people. <laughs> it was nuts. You're doing a lot, a lot of festivals. But um, yeah, we wrote the book, 
lot of guys would come to me. How'd you learn all this on ham radio? No, how'd you learn ham radio? No, you don't understand. I said, well, maybe you don't understand. That's how I learned it. I didn't. I barely got out of high school. I already had two careers going, and I wrote a lot. And I don't know how many tens of thousands of that book started a lot of people with their live sound stuff. But that's, you know, that's just some of the pieces that get me cooking. And so much uh, went on in my young life. But um, it was all because of ham radio. And I, I'm so blessed that my high school chum invited me to be a ham. Uh, that was the best part of the whole thing. And uh, we're still cooking, still doing it. And uh, so many other little turns. We were a major factor in the satellite business. We were one of the test team for the direct TV. And uh, it, we did a lot of home theater. We're not talking about little $300 rooms. We're talking about home theater rooms that were three and dollars $400,000. Um, high def projectors in 1986 think about it Macintosh amps and all that it was just way beyond what, what I could think about in those days <clears throat> uh, to today's show hired me to bring one of my theaters up it was their Christmas prick for 1995 and we were there with Al and all the, the crew and they went through but we do a lot of design work in, in homes and stuff and uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, those are new homes. You see there, I did a lot of new homes. I love doing new homes because I could go in and change the walls. You never want parallel walls. You ever think about that? You go into a theater. How come it's sloped? How come the walls are angled? Oh, it's the design. No, it's not. It's because they don't want any fa standing waves. What are you talking about? What, standing waves in a room? Uh-huh. When that sound comes off that screen or whatever and comes to your ears, you think, oh, well, it stopped there. No, it didn't. It went behind you and hit that wall. Well, then what did it do? It comes around and hits you again a little second later out of phase. So you get all this weird going on. That's why the walls are all not parallel. I built this new studio. I, I built it not knowing about the pandemic coming, but I finished the, the construction company. I designed it all, but the construction company finished it a week before we were shut down. <laughs> and it's a room I designed for my theater organ. There's 10 speakers, a couple of subwoofs above me. And all the, the, the walls, there's no parallel walls in this place. And they're all covered in a very, almost like a carpet, but it's made for studios because I helped build a lot of studios in my career. And so I was very lucky about that. But that's, uh, that's what I did to these new homes. I'd be able to make these walls because the designers and the, the uh, contractors think I was nuts. You know, that's not plumb. I, yeah, I know it. The ceiling isn't level. No, I know that. And I, I try to explain it to them, but they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. But, oh, you know, we got into a lot of things. Here, uh, show you this one. A lady came to me and said, hey, I hear you on KMOX radio all the time. Talking about this home theater. Here's my 100-year-old house. You think you could do something with that? 
Well, absolutely. That's what we did with it. Back behind that curtain was that. And another guy said, well, what can I got to do my ugly fireplace? I said, just what we're going to do at your ugly fireplace. <laughs> it, it just went nuts from there. One of the things that was very exciting in my life, in 1977, there was a ham, WD0NJB. He was on KMOX radio in St. Louis every night, five nights a week. And KMOX at the time was the powerhouse. It was 50 kilowatt, but it was clear channel right in the dead center of the country, St. Louis. That thing would cover 44 states with a big signal. It had a tremendous a tremendous coverage and it had great listeners and uh, I was on there with Jim White uh, for 25 years and every night we'd get on and talk about all kinds of things but we also talked about ham radio and it, it was really fun and uh, that's where we could talk a lot about things and uh, we, we were Telling everybody, it's going to be here. You're going to have a little two-foot dish. That was five years before it was even talked about. Well, I was on the test team then uh, for the Hubbard family. The Hubbard family, had the, they were the first company, the first people, their whole family in Minneapolis. You want to do a show some night, do a show in the Hubbard family. Amazing. Anyway, their grandson bought the first K-Band license. That means 12 gigs when everybody else was down here at four gigs, right? And it could be smaller. And so they could make a little dish. And I was on the test team. They sent me one in 1991, uh, years before it was reality. And we did a lot of tests with it. Of course, I was on KMOX every week talking about it. It's coming. It's coming. And on, from the Consumer Electronics Show floor in 1994, I went on ABC television live and told them, it's here. <laughs> and so the president of RCA came down to our place and uh, we put in the very first direct TV system in a home. It was out in West County, St. Louis. The second one went into Bobby Costas's office. What you see with the inflatables on top, that's the front of our place today. In those days, it was a retail store for home theater and satellite stuff and all that, direct TV. We were the first satellite uh, home uh, uh, direct TV dealer uh, uh, from uh, our place. We worked with Ray Dolby uh, introducing his ProLogic in, in some of our monster theaters. And uh, this was a good friend of mine, Tom Linson Holman. He helped me when we had that console from Le uh, Langevin. I wasn't about to pile into that $10,000 console. I wasn't an engineer. I was a ham. And he just graduated from the University of Illinois with an engineering degree and a film uh, degree. He went on to design THX, Tomlinson Holman Experiment. He worked for Skywalker, uh, George Lucas's Skywalker. They would have me out several times, and I'd help him teach some audio for home theater. So you know, this, this just—you can't make this stuff up, and it just kept coming in my life. But one day, it came to a big halt, 
I got the phone call. And the phone call came from Paul Klipsch. Paul Klipsch was the father of the folded horn. In 1940, probably I was eight, I'm 48 or nine, he was the real mover and shaker for the hi-fi movement. And um, he called me one day and said, you the guy that's got that 10,000 watt PA? And I said, yes, sir. Well, I got to come and see this. He was an efficiency freak. I want to tell you, and I say that nicely, he could take one watt and do 110 dB at three feet. It was amazing. His speakers were so efficient. His speakers that they put in the box, it was just unbelievable. So he flew up. I figured, oh, he's going to cut me off at the knees, but he didn't. And all day long, it's like, uh, why'd you do this? Or why'd you do that? And so he put me in his plane, flew back to whole Arkansas that night, spent the night, it changed Bob Hyle's life. And if we had another hour or two, it's really incredible to know what happened to the studies of the Bell Labs in 1920. They had 4,000 scientists and engineers to try to figure it out. What are you talking about, Heil? They put the telephone system together. They had two wires, New Jersey to New York. And every 50 miles, this was amazing. Think about this. Every 50 miles across America was a relay station. You maybe know where there are some around you. I know where there's a few around St. Louis and Illinois here. They're not working, of course, but the buildings are, you know, insurance buildings or whatever. A couple of them, the towers are still up. They wanted to keep the voltage up. They wanted to keep the level up. They wanted to keep everything linear across the country, and they did. It was wonderful. When they got out to California, wow, it was perfectly linear. There was only one problem. When they turned the system on, this is what happened. I'll change some microphones. When they turned that system on, they weren't, they weren't ready for this one because what they heard is this like wh what happened what happened to our articulation what happened what it's all muffled what happened well that can't be it's all flat what happened and so they put those four thousand scientists and engineers on this case and I really mean there were 4,000 scientists because they couldn't figure it out. It's like, what happened here? We, we had this all so well engineered, and yet we couldn't understand each other. W what was the deal? Well, the deal was pretty simple after they figured it out. What did they figure? It was these two guys. We owe them a great, great statue in the park, let me tell you. Dr. Harvey Fletcher and Dr. Weldon Munson, the Fletcher-Munson guys, they started working on our ears. And they found out 
that the human ear perceived audio very different at different levels. Up at 100 dB. That's why kids like to listen to music so loud because it's almost flat. Hey, hey, Bob. Yeah. Can you go back to your other mic? Uh, your your quality is not as good as it was a minute ago. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm trying to show. Yeah. yeah. Hang we're on. Having, we're moment. having a little trouble uh, hearing you, actually. So, okay. I, you know. There you go. There. There you go. He just needs to turn it up loud. Yeah. Well, no. Here's the deal. What they discovered, Dr. Fletcher and Dr. Munson, this is what they discovered. The human speech needs a rise at 2.5K. If you don't have that, this is what you got. There it is, flat. And so there are a lot of people say, oh, well, I don't need no EQ, I'll get out of here. I don't need no EQ. Yeah? Okay. You like it without? Let me put some 2.5 back in, which the 4,000 scientists told us. And when you do that, oh my. Now, it's very, very articulate. And that is what we learned from the scientist. But the deal there was that it wasn't happening for many of the different things. I mean, of course, the telephone company. But it took a long time. That now that they discovered, hmm, what are we going to do about this? And um, they had to equalize the telephone system. The, e the word equalizer had not been talked about. It was a whole different thing. And the history of the equalizer became very, very important. But, but they didn't have it. So what they did, we had 4,000 en engineers now. They had to equalize the system using passive networks. It's very simple. This is a passive filter. Audio comes in. The highs will all, 100%, will go through that cap if it's large enough. But it will, they will take the lows in that resistor and it's gone. The only thing left are the highs. And you figure it out. There's an equation down there. If you wanted to, to work in lows, is what you did for low-pass filter. Comes in there. The lows go through the resistor. But all the highs go to ground. Now, how much of it depends on what you did. Well, there was another genius. It was a young man. John Volkman, he worked for RCA in the 1920s. His job was to equalize motion picture playback systems. You see, the motion picture theaters are just cranking up in the late 20s. And what he did, he used a bunch of passive filters with a switch network, and he could switch in different low pass or different high pass and that was a that was the real beginning of equalization the surprising thing about it is nothing happened very little even through the 50s in the hi-fi world we would have bass and treble controls but they would just make the resistors passive variable but it wasn't really fantastic like we have today 
nothing happened really until 1967 when Langevin once again came to the front and they built the first production of an equalizer with slide controls. They could select the frequency with the knobs on the top and it was just a miracle. A year later, they came out with this, and that's when Bob Heil said, aha, we're going to be on this parade. And from there, it gets really crazy. A few years later, some metrics came out with this. Every radio station, television station probably in the world have some metrics in them. Everyone I've ever been in, including mine. It's a three-band parametric. Yeah, the bottom picture shows you the three bands. And uh, that's what I used, uh, that platform I used for Yesu. I designed all the equalization in all the Yesus from the 9000 all the way through to the new 101. And it's formulated on those three filters. And uh, it's right over there. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah, you can see that right over there. <laughs> and I use it every morning for my AM nets. And the fact uh, that's a picture of it. That's that's the curves. I roll off the low end, increase the 2.5K and a little bit to 6K. But it's all about equalization. Being able to shape those filters. And a lot of people don't realize it. You can shape the bandwidth of an audio filter uh, pretty easily. Well, I had been off the air for 12 years. I come back on the air, and uh, what happened? I went ballistic. What happened to my great Art Collins audio? I was just freaked out because it was terrible. I was hearing all these signals. They're all muffled and had no articulation. Going, what is happening, Heil? You got to do something about this. And so I did. In 1982, I built the EQ 200 for me. But as I'd get on the air, so many people were, what are you doing? Man, that's pretty cool. And I never intended for it to, to, to build it or whatever. We had closed our plants and everything was gone. But I wrote an article in QT, uh, QST magazine. And this article was a do-it-yourself. Told you how to do it. All the parts list, laid it out. But I put my phone number in there. Or maybe shouldn't have. Yeah, I should have done it. I started getting a lot of phone calls. Ah, we don't want to. We want you to build this. And so the EQ 200, the first equalizer all in ham radio, happened. And I brought back some of my great solder gals. Open up a little portion of the big plant and uh, off and running, we were in the amateur radio business. And I didn't know where this was all going. Built a lot of different little things in those days, little bitty mixers, little three-channel passives and stuff. I get a phone call one day from Dr. Inouye. ICOM Communications, Inouye Communications, sent me a picture of his station. It had one of these, and it had one of my Goldline microphones, and I'm going, oh, my. 
I'm thinking of new radio, and I want to use your EQ200. And so, everything from the Pro 1, Pro 2, Pro 3, all the way through to the great bit all. Oh, I love it. I love it. If you don't have one of these, you, you need to get it. It's the greatest toy in ham radio, the 705. It's a 7300 on steroids. It's got two-meter D-star, all kinds of stuff. has my equalizer in it. Everything that the 7300 has, it's wonderful. Why do I have it? Because they want me to build a headset for it. And so I did. And it's out there and happening. While I'm at it, I had never really done a lot with the handy talking market. And I thought, you know, this would be the time. And so we now have really cool headsets for the Yesu to Kenwood and all of that. You see, I, I, I never got into it because handy talkies weren't in my vision at the time. And then it started leaning on me that all of the headsets out there were absolute Chinese junk. I mean, Chinese garbage. I'm going, we got to do something about this. My director of operations said, hi, why don't you get off your fanny and do something? So we did. Whenever you see this name on something, I'll guarantee you it's far from junk. I ever see reviews in Eham and it's not right. I can only tell you they have the wrong cartridge the wrong connector didn't know exactly how to use it and so i will write them a nice email get on the phone with them and help them there is absolutely no excuse for my products because i use this is where i design them and i'm on the air every day with this stuff but uh, then i had to get into a lot of other things uh, he wanted me to build a microphone most of these companies do not build their own microphones and it freaked me out when i found that out we built the ICM. It's absolutely a miracle for all ICOMs. Really something special. But then Dr. Hasegawa comes to me at Dayton two years later, comes into my booth, and he's about this tall. We want to do it better. I said, oh, okay. We could do a parametric. Yeah, that'd be the good. I go, uh, not so fast. What be the problem? Education. What do you mean? Well, with my little two-band equalizer, I was the engineer. They went into the ICOM with 160 and 2.5K, the frequencies. All you could do and needed to do was plus or minus all. So they didn't have to do a lot. A parametric, uh-uh. You have three parametric filters. Oh, it's definitely the best, let me tell you. And nobody ever... <laughs> They never got the nerve to do it in ham radio, but I figured now's the time, and it was. There are three filters, and as you saw a little bit ago, you do the frequency, you do the bandwidth, audio bandwidth, and you do plus or minus level. So you have frequency, level, width. But you have 
nine controls. You don't have two. And this where it got really complicated for a lot of guys. And so when I hear a lot of guys on with Yesus and they're all muffled and so I'll check in and find out. I ask them nicely, you in the default mode? Oh yeah, I don't care about all the other crap. Really? Okay. Because it's so simple. It is so simple. And so here it is. You set the first filter at 200. It could go to 100 if you want. I just set it at 200. We notch it. Minus 3, 4, 5 dB. And a bandwidth of two octaves. Don't argue with that. Just set it at two octaves. You'll be okay. I mean, we're just, just, this is set up. You can feather it out if you want. But what about that next filter? Where are we going to do it? See, this is the problem. The guys don't know where to set the frequencies and... In all of my thousands of concerts I've done, there's something about 900 hertz. It's boxy sounding. If you do this to your ears, that boxy sound is there and you got to get rid of it. And so we do the second filter at 900, notch that little baby, 3, 4 dB, two octaves, and bingo. Well, you know what the top one is. I sure hope you would. 2.5K, and you plus that little baby about plus eight at two octaves. Was that difficult? Frequency level width. Frequency level width. Frequency level width. I don't care what all that other stuff said. We don't care assignment numbers. We just want to take the tops and do that. Now, we have it in our site. You can go in and find this. Just what I told you, 209. Now, you can play with those, but it gives you a starting point. They also have two sets of equalizers. One of them, learn how to address a microphone. That's another night for another subject. You can't be two feet from it. You can't be putting it on your belly and laying back in your chair. You, the scientists, see, I learned all this from these 4,000 scientists. I mean, I spent years and still do once in a while. I go back because it's all there. You can never be more than two inches from the source because, listen up, listen to this. Every time you double the distance, you lose six decibel. Six. If you double your power, that's only three, right? Think about this. Every time you back off from the mic, you double it, you'll lose six. Well, shut up, Hyle. You just turn up the gain. Well, then you sound like you're in a roller rink. And so it's very simple. Very simple. And I, I'm just, I'm really happy that I'm able to go in with a lot of clubs today and be here with you guys and gals and learn about all this stuff because it's it's all there it's also in our our website we got about 50 60 pages all things icom all things yesu kenwood alicraft and several others just go to the support pages and it's all there but there again nobody's talking <laughs> and the equalizer is a big part of it all of the radios have it today and i was a big part in all of that with all of them because I was in the in the beginning stages of designing all of them but we also had another little situation about some guy I don't know maybe you know this guy 
might be able to talk to him once in a while, WB6ACU. I moved to California. Well, it was a second home, Sarah and I, to help him. He was needing some help. And in those six years we were out there, we were working in the studios with him and doing a lot of stuff at ham radio. But he said, you need to build me a better microphone. He says, you remember that? That big antenna you had up, when I'd come through there in the bus and get on two meters, you turn it around, I couldn't hear you. Do that to my microphone. And so we did. And all of our microphones have our exclusive pattern on the front. But what do you do about the rear pattern? <laughs> Remember why they talked about phasing those, those two meter arrays? Oh boy. Was that fun? Oh, was that fun? Well, what I did, I knew about phasing. Let's see here. Yeah, here we go. And again, I don't hear much talk about it. What's wrong here? You have all these companies, but they're not helping us. So what I did is I did some experiments with Joe and it all came about with phasing. I'm going to plug these microphones in. I have a Y cable and these two microphones are identical. But PR22s, this is a microphone that Paul Rogers of Bad Company asked me to build him. It's very articulate, and you don't have to have a lot of equalization on it. So, they are alike, different colors. I have this magic little plug. Plug it in. And three is to two. And three, three is to two, and two is to three. It's backwards. It's a Y cable, by the way so I can do two of them together. Well, hey, they work just fine. What, what's the big deal, Hyle? Because one of them's out of phase. It, sound, it should sound weird. No, it doesn't. It's out of phase. When I talk into this one in phase, the diaphragm goes down. When I talk into this one out of phase, it comes up. You know what's going to happen when I talk into both of them that's out of phase? Watch the screen and listen. Listen up. They cancel. Uh-oh. Hello. How many hours do we have? It's my favorite subject. It affects everything we do. Some idiot file piles on top of your frequency. You hit a notch filter. What happens? Your receiver takes him out of phase, and he's gone. Plug up the southern microphone. And it just really bugs me that we don't hear about this. Nobody's talking about this. And I love to share this science of this whole hobby. And this is a big part of it. But then Joe said, what are you going to do about that rear stuff? Well, you just uh, learned what you can do with phasing. And I said, you know what? I can do that. And so, 
the PR-40 became real. First of all, it's the only microphone that has a large diaphragm. It's an inch and, an th an inch and three eighths. Everything else, RA20s or whatever, they have a little, and sure, has a little three quarter inch, maybe an inch. None of them can do that. And how I know that is when I brought the 40 out, the engineer, Bob Shuline, I'll name him, he was a good friend. I worked with him for a long time, years back at, Sh at Sure. He was retired. He came by and said, how did you do that, Hyle? We tried to do that and failed. Yes, they did with their SM7. What are you talking about? Mm, open it up. It was supposed to be a big diaphragm, and they didn't make it. So what they do? They took an SM57 and hung it in a shock mount. It's just ridiculous. They fooled you all these years. You thought the SM7 was really it. It looks cool. Here's that front pattern. Look at that. I can go a full 180 and you didn't know I moved. But when I go behind it, when I go behind it, it's going to be 40 down. Check it out. Watch the screen and listen. Yep, It's still there, but it's 40 down. No other mic will do that. How did you do that, Heil? I did it with phasing. It was so simple, really. First of all, Every microphone out there except ours, they have four little holes, little eighth-inch holes, three o'clock, six o'clock, nine o'clock. That's the only entrance for rear rejection. Well, that's not enough. So I built this, what I call, signal collection tube, and we set that large diaphragm up there with a, a little shock mount. And the whole bottom of the element's open, not those three little holes. And so I have 360 degrees coming into the bottom of the element, which is out of phase. And that's how we get that. And I'm really so proud of this thing because we're just, I, I did, I just, I, I, I see so many artists using it. The biggie was when, when Sirius Radio came to me and tossed their RE20s and bought 250. PR40s. Even Sheldon Cooper's got one. Hey, Sheldon does a podcast for us, and he wants a he wants a special one. So I built him a gold and black one. <laughs> we have a custom shop. We can do anything. <laughs> and of course, you guys all know we did the microphones for Tim, and uh, I was part of that whole scene when it started. With John, came to me and he said, "Hey, I'm a ham. We could write that into this new show." Can you help us? I call Ray Novak, and hey, yeah, Ray and I put this all together. Comet antennas and a whole bunch of people. MFJ got involved. It was fun. It was really fun. But so many of these entertainers have figured out that we're just more than a ham radio. <laughs> uh, I want to do one more thing here before I shut up. I've gone way too long, Tom. I'm sorry. Once I get talking, I just, there's just so much to learn. How does phasing work? How did how did West Yum get rid of the carrier? How did he do that? How did he get rid of the other sideband? I told you how the notch, all because of phasing. The Yagi antenna, how's the Yagi work, you know? You got to think about this. This is serious stuff. Dr. Yagi had no modeling and all that. All he had was a field strength meter and a bunch of aluminum. 
he he had built a resonant driven element put it in the middle of a boom and just started cutting and moving and all of a sudden at one particular point forward wow he got gained no batteries needed hot dog then he got he went behind with longer and he got rejection because it was out of phase at that particular point i got to thinking you know a phased array could be in my my picture i always heard about them but i thought man they're gonna be really expensive and gonna be really hard no it wasn't put up two telephone poles i got from the co-op they gave them to me 65 foot high and 65 foot apart 75 meters but now notice there's a there's a remote switch you can switch it to the left and that's the driven element but when you do that it's also hooked up through that red to the one behind it's delayed and so it's out of phase that is the rear rejection or reverse it the other way let me tell you this thing is dynamite take a listen We have just completed the installation of a 75-meter phased array antenna system consisting of a pair of coaxial dipoles mounted atop a pair of 55-foot telephone poles. We put them in an inverted V fashion and the poles are 64-foot apart. These are 500-foot from the operating position fed with RG213. In order to make the antennas directive from east to west, we use a delay line of 43 foot here on 75 meters that's switched in and out of the driven element, either east or west. The down lead length is 126 foot. We take all of that coax, the down lead length, the 43 foot phasing delay line, and mounted them in a container, one of the plastic container boxes that we actually buried. And just the top of it shows it's all sealed so it's waterproof but that's the way we get to switch all the components from 500 foot using one of the Amatron RCS 8V remote switches it really works well take a listen to how we can get at least 10 to 20 dB difference east to west people do I mine's usually three inches or so did you know that's just after you didn't mow it and uh, I know you know probably uh, uh, you know we get a dry day I'm, I'm gonna have to lay out there and mow that's just all there is to it because you know if you leave it that high when it starts growing any at all it's looking right it's looking ragged pretty quick so it's, uh, it's to that point now, and uh... the system really performs on weak signals. Take a listen as we switch to the direction they're coming from. Also note, the preamplifier makes no difference on 75 meters on this signal. The preamplifier, of course, make the meter read higher, but in many cases, the preamplifier does not cause the weak signal to be more readable. Check it out. Of a portal 
As you saw and heard, it's pretty amazing what you can do with two pieces of wire <laughs> in the right places. But I really, I really enjoy what you can do with some of that stuff. But the problem is that we don't hear enough about it. And so we got involved in a whole lot of things with that. And it, it's been a, a real pleasure to share that. And so we're, we're happy to bring some of this to you. The other thing you guys, gals know all about what I did with the pine board thing. We could be here all night talking about that. <laughs> but it's been very popular. My whole deal when I started it in uh, late 2018, my whole deal was that I wanted to, people to learn to build. And that was, that was my whole criteria. And it worked. First of all, we were building on pine board just like we did in the early days. And it was simple. One of the things that really got it kicked off, though, was W4IQN. I'll never forget it. <laughs> the first night or two, I was trying to do a whiteboard and hold the microphone in the right place or get the boom right and get the camera right and trying to draw. And my drawing were terrible anyway. I get an email from Gene, W4IQN. He was a retired graphic artist for General Motors. And he said, I think I can help you. Oh, my gosh, did he. <laughs> His drawings were actually better than, than the old Heathkit drawings. You just look at those and check them out. My gosh, how good was that? And so I was very, very honored that he came forward and helped me with the drawings. We had over a thousand people and they're still building. How do I know that? Is because the Antique Electric Supply Company down in Mesa, Arizona, they put the kits together. You can go there today and buy pine board power supply, pine board equalizer, mic preamp, pine board final, and away you go. And it's it's just great. I use use mine quite often. What you see up there is that big dog. That's all of them. Here's just the transmitter, and, and this is all fun stuff. It, I don't know why more people don't do some of this. I guess they figure well. Nobody will hear me. You'd be surprised what you do with five watts on AM. But what's really cool about this is that's a 75-meter coil. And this is my band switch. <laughs> what are you talking about? Hi, are you crazy? No. If I want to go on 40 meters, I put a 40-meter crystal in here. And I short out those coils. It's just what happens in your 7300. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when you go to different bands, it cuts off the different pieces because the lower the frequency you're going to need the whole thing higher in frequency same thing but a lot of a lot of people learned a lot of different things here and i did this when i was 15 years old why can't i do it now of course i did <laughs> yeah the pine board thing uh, really really gained uh, prominence when uh the awrl had it in there 
2019 January. It was the lead article and the cover shot. And I was so blessed. My gosh, this is way beyond what I thought. Of course, I had a lot of people that were beating up on me. All day. You're going to kill somebody. No, that's because, as Larry Burroughs did, we constantly tried to help them respect that high voltage. And so those were all things that we had a lot of fun with. So, so Tom, hey, are you still awake? Yeah, I'm, I'm here, sleep? Bob. And I tell you, Bob, let's let's open some phone lines up for a little while. Yeah. There's a lot of people that have really been interested here. I'm gonna I'm gonna put the number up here right now. Uh, we got phone lines in 65 countries. There's the phone number up on the screen. Dial that number and enter that code and join us here and talk with Bob. So let's yeah. give them a, a couple minutes. Hey, hey, Bob, Bob, I've got a ahead. quick question for you. <laughs> What's that? Bob, did, did you uh, ever uh, meet uh, Don Miller, W9NTP? He's got a Wurlitzer, he had a Wurlitzer theater organ in his house. Mm -hmm. And the entire uh, second floor was filled with all the pipes and the... Uh, and the different thing, it was all pneumatic. He found a uh, 1925 Wurlitzer theater yeah, organ. Absolutely. Yep, had one in my home, had one in a restaurant I played in, and then, of course, the monster at the Fox. That had 3,500 pipes in it. That was a monster. Yeah, and was that pneumatically controlled oh, as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a pipe yeah. organ. Yeah. A huge blower, old yeah. Spencer blower. <laughs> yeah. That's what Don had in his house. This one in front of me, about 15 feet, is an amazing wow. piece of technology. They went to 24 different Wurlitzers around the country and sampled them. And when that thing plays, it's scary because it is exactly how the, the real stuff sounds. I never will forget the first day I ever sat down at one in a dealer's showroom. It just, well, you can't do this. Oh, yeah, you can. And I've had one from <laughs> that day forward. And it, it's an amazing thing. That's how I learned to listen because you, you have to, when you're mixing all these different sounds and registrations you, you got to listen to how they're all going to work and what they're going to sound like so that was all right well we're waiting on somebody to call in bob the phone lines are open hey bob and, uh, yeah yeah um did uh did did you know that you had the world record for a while with the who quadrophenia being the loudest concert yeah 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 <laughs> 1976. 76. Yeah. Crazy. Just crazy. <laughs> That's why some angel, when I was voicing pipe organs, you want to hear something loud. Why? It's amazing. It's 120 dB in those uh, chambers that have brass trumpets in them. You have to understand that a pipe organ, ha you, you, you can't lower the pressure, then it would change tone. How do you do that in a pipe organ? You put them in a very sealed room, and when you push your right foot down on the swell pedal, it opens shutters. They're closed. But when you want it louder, you open these shutters so that when you're down all the way, 
the room is just almost out in this room and you want to make it softer, you close them all. It's a mechanical nightmare. It has pianos, xylophones, uh, snare drums. All of that is driven uh-huh. by air solenoids. All right, we've got a caller. Let's see who we have here. Looks like, uh, who is it, Russ? Uh, hello, Russ. It's Dave on uh, Who is it? Dave on your line. This is Russ. I don't, I don't know where all the tones are coming. Yeah, from. we've got several people on here, so we've got uh, we've got Russ on. Russ, how you doing? Hi, very well. I have a question for Doctor Bob on Yesu three thousand. Go ahead. He's listening. Russ, go ahead. I'm getting a lot of touched here, so I don't. Maybe they're not coming through. So I'll go ahead and talk. Uh, Bob, Yesu FT. It has the parametric equalizer in there, along yep. with a mic equalizer. Uh, should they be set separately, or should they be used uh, together? Uh, the parametric music now only, and I'm getting some good reports. So I'm going to leave. But uh, just wonder about how the mic affects with the parametric equalizer. Or if that should be set as a solid uh, straight thing out, and then use the uh, parametric equalizer to enhance from there. You want to set the, you want to use the parametric, and you want to do it properly, as we talked about here. And it's also on our website. You want to set up that equal that parametric first. Then, if you want more, I wasn't aware that the three thousand had a mic equalizer because that's what the parametric is. So I wasn't sure. I, I got to check on that one. But you you want to pay more attention to the uh, parametric in there, the settings, and it's on our website. Okay? Oh, okay. Well, that's what I thought. And, uh, and I've got it said about uh, uh, three for parametric game. But, uh, yeah, no, they, and you can turn them both on at the same time if you want to. But then you yeah, get all kinds of weird stuff. So, yeah, that uh, would not be a good So I just idea. use the parametric only like, I more or less am, and forget we have a mic uh, equalizer on there, too. Okay, you got it. All right, hey, we've got... Thank uh, you, Bob. We've got, uh, we've got Bill, WZ5L on. Hey, Bill. Go ahead, Bill. Hey, Tom, and hello, Dr. Bob. Nice to Hi. see you again. Uh, hope everything's okay out there, and uh, where is it? Sp- Spring Hope? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you move around so many times. Um, I just wanted to thank you, Bob, for uh, helping me with that uh, problem with the cathedral across the t- across the street from me here. And um, uh, I won't see you at Huntsville. Maybe I'll see you at Dayton. Have a good evening, sir. Okay. Well, good luck. Thank you. All right, guys, we need uh, callers to give you a chance to talk with uh, Dr. Bob. Uh, the phone number is on the screen, and the code is 407051, pound sign. Let me just say, hey, well, there was a, an interesting question in the in the chat that I thought might be interesting to answer. With, uh, with all the involvement you've had with uh, you know, rock stars and other musicians, uh, how many of them have you introduced to and gotten involved into ham radio? None. 
done. <laughs> I guess they're too busy, right? Well, it's uh, it's Joe, Joe and I, of course, yeah. but yeah. no, um, um, not really. I, it, those guys and gals are extremely focused on what they're yeah. doing. We got a call from 614 area code. Uh, who's the caller? Yes, it's Mike from Sydney calling, Tom. And Mike, Dr. Bob. Mike, you're down in Sydney. Um, yeah. Well, how, how's Sydney. our signal coming in down there? Are we like 5-9 down there in Sydney? Yeah, 5-9 plus 20 over. All right. Very good. <laughs> Very good. Go, go ahead. Go ahead, Mike. But, um, I just got a, I've got just a comment to Dr. Bob. Um, I'm an engineer by trades. Um electrical engineer, but um, audio is um, my expertise, and uh, you just brought so much back. Uh, I'm retired now, but uh, you just brought so much back uh, talking about all those things, and um, a lot of your work was uh, consumed by me and my uh, colleagues in um, doing our work. Um, we set up broadcast uh, stuff so uh, for radio studios and um yeah um just thanks for uh, uh all the uh the, the, the history well i appreciate that thank you good to hear from you mike hey tom yep yeah go ahead thanks Grant. tom yeah, let me jump in here. There's a couple things, Bob. Uh, first of all, now you got me embarrassed being two feet away from my microphone. But uh, <laughs> one, uh, Bob's going to be at the Huntsville Ham Fest uh, doing his forum on Saturday. Who, who is? Who is? Bob. No, Bob's not coming to Huntsville. No, well, you're not. No. You're on the schedule. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Darn. Yeah, but the uh, only. The only thing I'm doing today, and for the future, right now, I do Zoom. I yeah. Zoom in. Now maybe they're going to do that. I don't I haven't heard. I don't know. They just had you on the list. I thought, no. wow, cool. No. Um, the other thing, you didn't even talk about your receive PRAS system. That's been my secret weapon at field day for the last two or three years now. Well, I, I kind of saved that down the line here. I, didn't talk about the talk box either what made me famous maybe but uh this is a couple of minutes i have a great demonstration you want me to do that uh tom yeah you can uh you can do that and i thought okay, we had so another call go ahead bob sure well if you if you got a call take the call no no we don't go ahead okay well the thing is that i i got thoroughly just ticked because I see these companies come out with these little bitty junky speakers and they're full of distortion and I'm going, I gotta do something about that. But that's not the real reason. The real reason is I work for these companies, now forget this, from 1999. Every single solitary transceiver, I don't care what it is and how much it costs, has tons of distortion some of them up to 10 percent and only a couple of watts and some one watt and then they got some little junky three inch speaker they put it in a little box and charge you 150 bucks oh i'm sorry it's painted the same color and if you don't believe any of this 
<laughs> I really feel sorry for you because it's exactly the truth. I'm not making this up. I work with these guys. But I can never get them to listen. Our receiver, fine. No, I'm not talking about sensitivity, selectivity. Oh, we can hear it. Okay. Yeah, you can hear it, but you didn't listen. So I said, I'm going to do something about this. And the first thing I did was lean on my great late friend, Paul Klipsch, to build a decent speaker. He taught me how to take a speaker outside in free air and do a cone resonance. Find out what the resonance of that cone is. You'll see our speaker. Look how big that mag magnet is. It's really huge. A very, very high quality speaker. It took me about a year to find a manufacturer that would listen to me. Then, once we knew the frequency of that of the cone, you treat the inside of the cabinet with different baffles and stuff so we don't have much phase problems. There's no phase reversals. And then the amplifier. It's not one or two watts, it's 25. And you go, well, what do you need so much for? Because it's got lots of headroom. You're never going to use 25 watts, but you have lots of headroom. And it's at point, point 0.1%. Not 1%, not 10%, but 0.1%. This is hi-fi levels. And they're balanced line in. That's another subject that just drives me incredibly... Because... Every broadcast transmitter, every broadcast uh, microphone, all of their equipment, it's all balanced line. It gets rid of noise because those two lines are out of phase. Anything out of phase, it cancels. You saw that a while ago. So we have balanced line in. 25 watts, wow. So now what do we do? Well, I had to build the proper equalizer. And the equalizer of course, is pretty special. The equalizer is parametric in the mids, but it has 160, it's just a regular shelving, and out at 6K, no problem. Well, now we have to deal with headphones, and this is where it gets really good. I listen to you guys and gals when I design things. We go out to ham fest and stuff over the years. You tell me things that you want, and we do it. I mean, that's that's why I'm here. I'm just going to build things just to build them. Many, many companies do. But this is one incredible product, and it's it's really picking up fire the last year or so, more than I really expected. So Bob, you, you were mentioning Bob, you're mentioning on, on this unit here that with with two different channels, if you have a hearing issue, yeah, you can you well, can compensate, right? Yeah, that's where I am, right here. Okay. There are two headphone amplifiers, one for the logger, one for the operator. However, many guys and I get so many emails and phone calls. I gave him the radio back. You can have the left side, right side if you have a hearing imbalance. And just having a very high quality, low distortion headphone amp is worth it. Then I have another line. These are not just wide together like some cheapos would do. It's actually line amplifiers. And 
for the headphone. Then we have an output that we can plug that into our computer and make really nice recordings. You don't have to bandage up a bunch of, of Y chords again. Stand, stand by, stand by caller. Yeah. Here's the equalizer. This one sits at 160 hertz, plus or minus. This one's at 6K, plus or minus. But here's the heart. This is the parametric. This is the gain of that filter. We'll just set that there. It'll be fine. But then we can rotate from 400 up through 1,000, up to 2,000, 2,500 to 4K, just like you would in a receiver. You dial in the frequency you want. I have some wonderful, wonderful tape here that I'm going to play. This came off air. Check this out. Sure enough, I can copy it. Here we go. There's the way you hear him. Listen. Here's flat. The way you hear him. There it is, flat. Echo India is Bravo, Lima Bravo, EIATLD calling him here are a couple of usual single sideband signals that are mushy and bassy, difficult to understand. You can add some speech articulation just by adding some 2.5 mid-range. You know, That's flat the way you hear him. the same as a rig built, you know, just for two-meter sideband. You know, they, the receivers will never, never compare. There it is flat. Uh, so it's kind of nice that, yeah, again, ICOM technology. It's an amazing product, and I'm really proud of it because it's helped so many. And that, that's the big deal with me in that it has really, really helped people. And we're so thrilled that we can do these things, and it doesn't cost a lot of money to do them. Let me get the camera in here a little closer. I want to show you some of the things. The main thing that we have going for it is it's not very expensive. And so, so many, so many things out there, they're, they're very complicated, and you almost have to be an engineer to run them. And I'm going, well, this isn't going to make it. And so, we're able to do things and do them on kind of a budget, so to speak. The, uh, the other thing about it is we got people using it for televisions, computers. Oh, is this thing great for computers? Let me run this by one more time. There's the way you hear him. Echo India is Bravo, Lima Bravo, B-I-S-L-B, It's at 2.5K that those 4,000 scientists told us. They taught us how to do that. They told us what was going to happen. And... I don't understand why so many of these companies today are not paying attention. I guess they figure, oh, well, that was back in the 20s. Uh-huh. That's where it all started. <laughs> and so I just, I just have to shake my head. Hey, Bob, we've got a caller from Mira Loma, California. Okay. Go ahead, caller. 
Dr. Bob, it's K6LCS. Hi. Thank you so much. It was 10 years ago. Ten years ago, Bob, that you helped uh, you and Gordo helped us with our ARISS contact out here in Riverside County, and uh, that website still gets hits, Bob. Uh, thanks for uh, the microphone and the support back on the old uh, the old show. Well, well, good to hear from you. I hope you're doing well. Thank and please say hello to President Sarah. Okay. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, very good. Oh, good old long-time California, buddy. Yeah. Well, Bob, it's been a, a really interesting night tonight. We'll wait for some more calls. You know, we'll sit down and do it. <laughs> I don't know where I'd have the time. Have the time, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. We're going to sign off. we got to take care of a few things around here. but Okay. It's good well. to see you, Bob. Thanks oh, for the presentation yeah. tonight. Really Thanks, good Bob. to hear from you. Yeah, All right, we'll Katie, Katie. See everybody next week. See you next week, Katie, and we'll talk field day next week. Uh, get your picture. Sounds ready. good. All right, sounds good. Bye, guys. Right. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Good night. All right, well, Bob, we're gonna have to just probably have you on every other week. I mean, <laughs> you've got enough to talk about here. We could, we could, you know, we could do something more regular. Uh, It'd Let's probably just, be pretty boring if we tried no, to do that. I don't that, know about no. that, man. I don't know. <laughs> we oh, need to get him that, and Martin on the same show. That's what we're doing uh, now. We're going back to a lot of these clubs, uh -huh. and uh, they pick out a subject. And uh, some of them, hey, what's it like to live with a who for six years? <laughs> Like well, that. and you know what, Bob? You just put up a picture there, and uh, let's see. I, I think I've got it here, too. Let's see. There it is right there. That's a picture of your wife, uh, Sarah. Uh -huh. She's the brains of the outfit. Now, I think she runs the outfit and tells you just to invent stuff, right? That's right. Yeah, pretty much so. <laughs> you, you just invent stuff, and she's the brains. And that, Hey, that's, that's a good way to have it, Bob. Yeah. Yeah, we've yeah. got a lot of people that's behind us, so I tell you. We've got a new president, Ash Levitt, and uh, we've got, he's, he's an amazing guy. He has a PhD in psychology, and he's just so smart. He's also a musician. Then the Steve Warford, who is the director of operations. Steve came to me when he was 16, and he's just absolutely amazing kid. So, you know, we're very blessed to have these people and all the others that work at, behind the scenes at Ohio Sound. Well, I thank you for having me. I, this is probably drug on more than I actually. Oh yeah, man, it is. It's just oh. been perfect timing, perfect, Bob, and we okay. really appreciate you being here with us. Yeah. Well, there's just so much. Didn't even get into the talk box. Yeah. Maybe we'll come back and do that again. Yeah, let's do it again sometime. Okay, when when we can get on your schedule. I know you got a tight schedule. Okay, it is. I this is full of club meetings. We did kind of find one that's not that's open. So stand. All right, we will. Uh, we'll see you later, Bob. Thanks so much, man, for uh, joining us tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, and thanks, thanks to all of you. It's fascinating you to listen to you. Got any questions? Why send me an email? I'm always around to help you. And I, I love helping people. So yeah, keep me posted. And, and Bob, I'll send you pictures of uh, Don Miller's Wurlitzer organ in his house. Yeah. He spent two years having it to, installed, and. Uh, the whole house shakes when he played it. When he played it, is it still going? Yeah. 
well, he passed away two years ago, but I think his wife still has it in the house. Oh, great. Yeah, it's W9, W9NTP. He was Wyman Research and a pioneer in slow scan television. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, take care, everybody. All right, Bob. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. That was great. 7-3, Bob. 7-3, Bob. Great to hear you. All right. Well, I hey, Gasol, we timed this just about perfect tonight. We didn't get to do the show after the show, but I think this was a lot more fun tonight. It's kind oh, yeah. of a special deal here. So, Alan, yeah, I know you're on the East Coast, man. you got to get up and go to work in the morning, right? Yeah, it's late, but it's always fun listening to Bob. I, yeah. I'm trying to remember. It was probably 10 or 15 years ago. I was, and I forget where it was. I don't know if it was at Dayton or if it was somewhere out here. I was giving a talk, and one of the stories I remember is how um, Peter Frampton got married in Bob's backyard so he can continue touring. So yeah. <laughs> there's a whole, whole set of stories on that side of the world, too, that we could talk about. Yeah. I uh, I used to talk to a guy on the repeaters in uh, Southern California when I was a student out there. Uh, it was WB6ACU Joe. Uh, it never dawned on me that it was Joe Walsh until years later, but I used to talk to him all the time. Oh, that's funny. Mm-hmm. But you're, it is late out here. I'm going to hit the, I got to get up uh, for a meeting in the morning. So, uh, but uh, good to see everybody and great show. Really, again, always fascinating to hear Bob talk. So uh, it was really, yeah. really enjoyable. All yeah. right. All right, man. Good night. And uh, man, I'm starting to get hungry. It's about time for a midnight snack here. All right. Yeah. See y'all next week. All right. Uh, All right. I think we're uh, we're about eight minutes past. I doubt we're still on shortwave, but um, you've been listening to Amateur Radio Roundtable, show about ham radio. Wants to thank everybody for joining us tonight, and uh, we'll see you next week. And that's uh, that's it, man. Uh, so uh, let's see. Okay, we'll say the show's officially over now. Now, now, let's see. Bill? Uh, uh, Bill, I'll see. Anybody else still with us? or It's just me and you, Bill. I think it's just me and you. And, and the music. Yeah, yeah, let me turn that off. Let me get this. Let me get that off. <laughs> if I can figure out how to turn it off. Yeah. And what time is the Thursday uh, uh, meeting? Yeah, we're going to have a meeting at uh, 8 p.m. Thursday night um, to talk about to talk about some of the planning for our uh, balloon launch Saturday. Now, we don't know what the weather's going to be like. I mean, we we hoping launch Saturday. Uh, our plan is to launch about 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've got a chase airplane. It's going to be kind of circling the uh, landing zone to see if he can see it coming down. Uh, we've got several people that are going to be following uh, the uh, GPS uh location to try to get to it we do have a $50 reward out there for anybody that can you know recover it now if there's a tie there's a tie if two of you guys get there at the same time you're going to have to fight it out that's all I can say you fight it out or you're going to have to split the reward Uh, don't ask me to settle it Um, so Thursday night we're going to just talk about what was it what was that Bill if they can catch it in the back of their pickup truck, I'll give them 50 bucks. Okay, all right, there you in go. So you can catch it in the back. Now, what about if we can hook it by the airplane? If we can catch it, if we uh-huh. can pull it in. That's how, 
that's how they do uh, spy satellite uh, film recovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was talking to our friend uh, uh, tonight, uh, uh, Bill, out in uh, Oregon, and uh, he said that's what he used to do. He used to fly the chase plane, or ch he used to chase the balloons. So, one of the pointers he gave us is hey, put the sun behind you. Keep the sun behind you, and you have a much better chance of, uh, you know, spotting the balloon. So yeah. what, what we're going to talk about Thursday, nothing is planned as far as the communications. We need to at least share phone numbers so we can stay in contact. Um, there are some repeaters that we can get on to communicate with. Um, uh, I would suggest, and I would like to know how many are tracking people out there are going to have APRS. Uh, if you don't have APRS, there's a free um, there's a free app for the iPhone, and there's also for the Droid. There's one called APRS Droid, and if you put that on your phone and turn it on, it'll send uh, it'll send your location through the internet. And and what we can do, we can put everybody that's that's uh, after the balloon. We can we can list everybody on APRS that's heading for the balloon. And we can see all the people converging on the balloon on the APRS map. Now, we may not have more than two or three people. I think we'll, we'll have APRS in the airplane also. So that would be kind of cool. And, you know, Bill, maybe you can help us. We want to talk about, you know, you've got all the experience. We have none. I want to talk about things like safety. If it's hanging from a power line, you know, don't maybe don't pull, don't grab it, you know. Um, you know, if it lands in somebody's backyard, maybe ask for permission first, you know, and don't get trapped in the, the yeah, deal. Don't get trapped like you where you had to cut the tree down and then cut the logs up and take them to the guy's house. Right? Yeah, this, these are always good rules, yes. Yeah, so, so you know, we had a lot of things like that to talk about. Uh, I think our, let, let me tell you, our lot site is not... Uh, uh, in stone right now. I'm looking at launching maybe 20 miles uh, north uh, east of Memphis at Somerville. I'm looking at a possibility of launching maybe kind of down in eastern Memphis at a big park. Um, but based on where the predictions say it's going to travel, we're going to have to shift probably our launching. And we might not even know that until Friday night. We might not get a good idea until Friday night. Um, but we we can't be flying the balloon over uh, Memphis airspace. I mean, if we if we fly the balloon over Memphis airspace, the airplane is not going to be able to fo follow it in there because it's, it's restricted space. So we want to keep it out of the the area here as much as we can. So I've had Bill every single prediction I run. It looks like this thing's going to do about 50 miles, to tell you the truth. That's a little further than I thought it was going to be, but I, you, I can it change varies, it. It varies this time of year. Yeah. Uh, it will be pretty accurate starting tomorrow. Tomorrow uh, night's update, the uh, wind models ought to be pretty accurate. I can change I can change the ascent rate from 2 meters per second to 6 meters per second. It, it it barely barely changes the landing site. Yeah, you're gonna be right around uh, five to six meters per second. It would be really difficult to get it 
down to two meters per second. Yeah. If you did that, it would end up going stay. It would probably float overnight. Well, I can put I can put uh, three point uh, eight meters per second in the in the model, or I can put seven meters per second in the model, and it almost lands in the same spot. Man, there's not much difference. Yeah, this time of year. Uh, the winds actually we've got a tropical storm going through which is kind of uh messing up your wind models some so uh it might be thursday before you get a really accurate uh yeah. read because that tropical storm just went past here and it's heading your way and so um probably thursday would be when we get the good thursday, uh, data thursday will be a lot closer to knowing but i i, I tell you i mean we may not know hey even Friday night may not be good. We were going to file, and I still would I plan on filing a notum, a notice to airmen. We were going to file with the uh, FAA and let them know when we're going to launch and, and so forth. But yeah, I mean, it's yeah, not necessary. That. It's not required, but I'd like to do that. But you need to do that like 24 hours before launch. And if we 24 move, hours beforehand. And if we move the launch site, then we won't be able to, you know, so... It's kind of iffy what right. we're going to do, you know. Um, All right. Well, I, we'll discuss that yeah. on Thursday. I should have a pretty good handle on it by Thursday night. Yeah, a lot to talk about. Uh, I do have the uh, website, the W5KUB.com website. Click on balloon. There's information at the very top about this flight, and I've got the APRS link you can click on to track. And I've got the spot trace link that you can click on to trace. So there's two traces. Oh, good. And, you you uh, did the spot share then. Yeah, yeah. This this uh, spot uh, spot trace. I think share it's called. There. Is that what's yeah. called? Yeah, they have a share link, and you can send that out. Yeah, to yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm providing. I'm putting a link out there for everybody. That way, you can have two different links to to do it and. Um, so on that website, and I've got a little note there, uh, I can try to type in an update Friday night, even mm -hmm. Saturday morning on that web page that says, hey, we're launching from Somerville, we're launching from Memphis. So so that the, the W5KUB.com balloon page is going to give you information where we're going to launch from, and uh, it, it's going to tell you about what time we're going to launch, and it, it has the tracking on there for you to click on so you don't have to remember anything. So we'll, we'll do a lot of this discussion uh, Thursday night and, and try to nail down all this stuff. And uh, uh, it's going to be an exciting trip, I think. We've never done one of these before. Bill, how many have you done? 900? 800? 1,000? Um, about 750. So Bill's done about 750 of these, so he's not getting excited. But this is our first one, so we're getting really excited about it. you know. And we're going to try to hit that 100,000 foot. We're going to try to. Now, I don't know if we'll make it. We should it be not. able to do it, uh, or at least come pretty close. You know, you know, I, you know, we're going to try. We're going to see. I've got everything ready. You'll be uh, a member of the 100,000 Club. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, I had to put my Air Force hat on. And I, I never flew that high in the Air Force either, you know. So this will be, this is something different in, 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 and neat you know i mean man can't wait i had a friend i had a friend who was a nuclear submarine uh captain and he said that uh, he's rated it and he's also a, a private uh pilot and so he said he was rated at plus or minus twelve thousand feet yeah yeah 
All right. I had a chance to visit with some Navy guys. You know, we us, us veterans, we, we, we told all of our stories to each other. And you already hear some of the stories the Navy guys tells. You know, these submarine guys. There was one story where they collected a bunch of, they, were, they had this, uh, they uh, they had this uh, exercise where the other team was trying to find them, and they went as far as they went and got a hot air. They went and got a weather balloon, and marked it with an arrow pointing down, and they buoyed that thing, and they still couldn't find them. And then another time, another time, they taped a bunch of coke cans together with some weights at the bottom, and made it look like a periscope, and it was floating out there, you know, in the water, it looked like a periscope out there. So it all, the Navy guys are crazy, you know. Speaking of that, before I go, I do need to, um, speaking of the military, this just came out, the Department of Defense did this survey uh, with an airman, with a sailor, and a Marine, and did I leave anybody out? An, arm, an Army guy. Okay, so the survey basically asked each one of them, you know, if you found a scorpion in your tent, what would you do? Well, the Navy guy said, I'll stomp it and kill it. The uh, Army guy said uh, he, he, he would stomp it. He'd take the butt of his rifle and he would just beat it to death. Um, the Marine said the Marine said that uh, he'd pull that stinger off and he'd eat it. And then the Airman said, I'd pick up the phone and call room service and ask what a tent's doing in my room. So we'll, uh, we'll close for that tonight. You got to be in the Air Force to know what that means. All right, guys.